listening to Maghrib in Past and Present podcasts. A space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode was recorded on October 9th, 2017 at the Tangier American Legation Institute for Moroccan Studies. In this podcast, we welcome Professor Michael Collier, a geographer at the University of Sussex, presenting a lecture entitled Migrant Subjectivities and Crisis Narratives in the Euromed Region. Professor Collier was joined by Fulbright scholar Sam Metz. I want to introduce uh, our friend and our colleague, Sam Metz, who will uh, lead the session with Dr. Collier, and welcome Dr. Collier. Sam is a Fulbright scholar uh, who studied his, who studied uh, Middle Eastern studies and political economy at the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, he's also done research and internships in Senegal and Algeria. He's, <laughs> he's been published in The Nation and the New Republic, and some of his writings have even been cited uh, in the New York Times. So I'm going to not say too much more about Sam. If you want to introduce Dr. Collier and talk a little bit, the microphone is now yours. Thank you. Thanks, John. Um, I just wanted to second what John said about the American legation. I think it's such a special space and such a great community, and we're so lucky that um, we have the funding to invite people like Professor Collier here. So thank you, John, and thank you, everyone, for coming. Um, so I'll introduce Professor Collier. He's a professor of geography at the University of Sussex, which is the home of the Sussex Center for Migration Research, which is a very strong center. Um, and from 2003 to 2005, he was associated um, a professor at the University de Abdelmalik Asadi in Tetuan. Um, so he's, today he's going to talk about migrant subjectivities and crisis narratives in the Euromed region. Thank you. This feels a bit like a sort of evening talk show host in the... Uh, <laughs> At, uh, with these big chairs. Um, it's, um, it's quite a difficult audience to, to pitch this at, so um, part of this is a bit theoretical. Um, hopefully it will be clear to everybody, but there'll be plenty of time at the end for questions um, if, um, if any occur to you, so please um, hold on to those. One of the reasons why I was very keen to, uh, to come and speak here, um, partly because of the the prestige of this place. The, uh, this is somewhere that uh, I used to come as a, a graduate student and use the library. So it's, uh, it really is a, an honor to come back here and, uh, and, and actually address an audience here. Um, but it's research which is significantly based um, within the, the region and Morocco more broadly. Um, as Sam said, um, I was here um, full time almost 10 years ago. Um, I've, uh, I've been back relatively um, frequently uh, since then and, um, and continued to do some research projects in the region that I'll mention in a moment. But um, part of this is, is a, a bit speculative. This is a paper that I'm keen to publish in the next six months, a year or so, and I want to try it out here. And this, this seems a, a really um, important audience to test out some of these arguments on and to see if you think they work. Um, so I'd be very interested in your response at the end. Um, the, the photo, um, I guess many of you will recognize it. It's the, uh, the Malia um, golf course. And, um, and for me, this is one of the more powerful images of the, 
the, the so-called migration crisis of the, uh, of the last few years. It's a photo that I've used quite a lot to, to illustrate talks I've given over this, uh, over this period. Um, if you've not noticed, the significant element of the photo is the, the various uh, individuals stuck on top of this, uh, this fence. When I first came to, to study these issues in Tangier in 99, that was the year, many of you will, will no doubt um, remember this from your, your own memories, the, the first high-tension double-layer fence on the borders of, uh, of Ceuta and Malia was constructed in 99. And it was only three meters high. And uh, the typical response to, to crisis since then, particularly 2005, more recently, um, 2011, 2012, has been to increase the height of this fence. And it's now nine meters. And, and it strikes me as a really um, significant analogy about the European response to migration, that it's typically been to increase the height of the fence. And you can see the, the Malia nine meter version of the fence. And this is with a whole range of sensors and detectors and radars on the other side of the fence. So it's a tremendous infrastructure of the border um, that, that doesn't actually stop people getting on top of it. It just means that they hurt themselves a lot more when they jump down the other side. And that's significantly been the, the real impact of these developments over that you know, almost 20-year period that, um, that I've been involved in researching these issues. Um, I want to to speak about um, a couple of, of research projects. One is, um, I'm going to draw on work conducted elsewhere in, in Northeast Africa um, with um, four colleagues at the University of, uh, uh, of Sussex. That's one we finished at the end of last year, um, working in, uh, in Ethiopia, Sudan, and, and Egypt. And ongoing research in Morocco with, um, with Miriam Cherti um, that um, the, the last formal project was a project called Beyond Irregularity that ended in 2014 that followed the, the first regularization of undocumented migrants in Morocco. Um, and since then, I've been coming back periodically to, to follow that up. So that's um, the, the empirical basis for, for what I'm, I'm talking about. And the, the argument that, uh, that I want to make... Um, or, or initially the question that I want to investigate is about migrant subjectivities. How do we understand migrants in this context? Um, and I want to, to argue that the way we understand migrants is influenced and influenced by the various policy responses which are open to us within the, the broader Euro-Mediterranean region. Um, I think the, the policy response that Morocco has taken since 2013, although that's really only become apparent, I think, since 2015, um, are amongst the more progressive in that area. Certainly there are plenty, including plenty of specialists working on migration in Morocco, who would, who would argue with that. But that is essentially the, the point that I want to make, that in, in looking at the region more broadly, it is difficult to find a, uh, a more open, progressive set of migration policies than has been implemented since 2013, the, the radically new migration policy as it was announced at that time. Um, so that's the broad current of what I want to say. There's a, a couple of publications recently that, that I will refer to. Um, one with, with Milliam in, um, in 2015, uh, looking at this relationship between geopolitical culture 
um, and change in orientation of, of Moroccan migration policy, and one that looks more broadly at the, the Euro-Mediterranean uh, region that was published last year in the Journal of Ethnic and Migration Studies. So I'll, I'll refer to those to those two, but um, and those are the two most recent ones I think that relate to what I want to say today. Um, talking about borders, I'm a, I'm a geographer, a political geographer, and for most of the last couple of decades, political geographers have been saying that when we think about borders, it's not about the physical location of the border. We need to get away from the physical location of the border because borders are essentially everywhere. And this is a, a, a very well-cited map that illustrates that. This is a, a European Union-funded project. You can see some of the funders of the project by the flags in the, uh, in the top left. Um, it's managed by the International Center for Migration Policy Development in Vienna. Um, and it's a long-running um, project called Mediterranean Transit Migration. And it identifies points at which um, European Union um, officials, state officials, are located and where observers are located. Um, and it's often cited to illustrate this idea of the networked border, that if we think about where is the border of the European Union, then it goes all the way down into, uh, into Nigeria, across to Ethiopia. Um, no, it's, it's a very wide-ranging um, set of institutions, if we measure it in those terms. It's much more than the actual physical border. Um, this is the, the European um, institution responsible for managing that, Frontex. Um, this is a photo of their control center in Warsaw. I've not actually been to their control center in Warsaw. It's tremendously difficult for, for academics and, and even journalists to get access to it. But this is a photo from their website. And I think it's interesting that this is how they choose to present themselves. I'm, I'm not even sure if it even looks like this. It's a bit difficult to imagine that they have this sort of you know, MI6-style control of uh, these great maps of things going on with live news feeds and live updated maps on these great big screens like a sort of Dr. Strangelove kind of, kind of approach. But it's interesting that this is how they want to present themselves. They want the world to see that they are not, they're not about going around the Mediterranean in boats trying to stop migrants. They are about some sort of information management control system. So this is the, the classic illustration of the networked border, that it's not about stopping people going over a particular line, but it's about controlling infrastructure and managing information. And their reports are not about migration control. They're referred to as intelligence updates, the Frontex uh, reports. And that's, uh, the language, I think, is significant, that they're, they're not defining themselves as a migration control agency. They are an intelligence agency, and this sort of image really reinforces that sort of idea, that this is about the networking of the, of the border. A second image of the, of the border, I'm going to talk about three, three versions of the border before I go on to, to migrants, um, is the humanitarian border. Um, this is a term that um, a political scientist called William Walters uh, came up with in 2011, and fits the role that Frontex sees themselves very effectively. The quote here, um, I'll, I'll read it out because some of you at the back won't be able to, um, to, to read it. But it's, uh, it's from a Frontex press release the day after 390 people were killed in a shipwreck just off Lampedusa. And significantly, this press release came out the day after this, but it doesn't actually refer to 
um, to that, that event. It's a, a hypothetical story about a, uh, a member of the Spanish Coast Guard um, who encounters an individual undocumented migrant in a boat in the Mediterranean and unleashes a whole series of chain of commands. It's about a two-page account of this um, that eventually lead to the rescue at sea of this individual. And this is the end of it. It says Frontex has deployed this Spanish plane to comb the area to spot the tiny specks that will start the wheels of search and rescue in motion once more. Another unsafe boat, another Samuel, Samuel was the name of the, the undocumented migrant who was rescued, another signal to Lieutenant, Can Lieutenant Canarie, and this is the, the name of the, the lieutenant who was involved in that, another day's work for the Guardia Costiera. So the image of, that comes out of this press release, and this is, a, I think, a broader characterization of, of Frontex's work and, and of border control within the Mediterranean more generally, is that this isn't about stopping people coming in. Samuel is exactly the sort of person that Frontex was set up to stop um, coming. This whole story is about rescuing Samuel from certain death within the Mediterranean. So this is... The, the nature of what William Walters refers to as the humanitarian border, that, that the aim of border control is no longer to control borders in this telling, but to save lives. And that's something which comes out, I think, repeatedly, certainly from European Union um, responses to undocumented migration over the last, certainly the last two years, but significantly more than that. So this was the, the sort of, of characterization that, you know, if we go back, three or four years, this would have been, certainly the humanitarian border was a relatively new set of theoretical ideas highlighting certain practices which were, were very common. The networked border, I think, goes back significantly longer than that. But there was general consensus amongst people working on this thing that border control wasn't really about borders. And, and then, one of the problems with coming up with these theories is that, that suddenly people start creating physical infrastructure on the borders again. Um, and it's difficult to explain. This is a map from The Economist from last year um, where they'd, they'd done a, a survey of new border control constructions. The, I don't know if you can see the colors here, but uh, in red is, is existing structures and in green is structures under, under construction when they did this, uh, this survey at the beginning of last year. And, and they reckon that since 2009, 27 countries have been involved in constructing infrastructure at the border of one sort or another in order to impede migration. And this is um, how it's seen in a, a cartoon from a, uh, a Dubai newspaper <laughs> that, um, that really emphasizes the, the response to the, the migration crisis um, across Europe, but also, also internationally more broadly. Um, has been to, to reinforce physical infrastructure at the border, which for political geographers like me, who've spent a long time arguing that actually this wasn't the significant thing, presented something of a puzzle, that how could we explain why everybody was suddenly so keen to, to build these structures at the border if that really wasn't what was important and it didn't have a major impact on migration anyway, like the photo at the beginning, increasing the height of the fence, just affects how, how badly people get hurt when they jump over it. Um, so th the argument that, um, that many of us have, have made around this is that this is almost a public relations exercise, that this isn't an actual attempt 
to stop migrants because it's relatively well established that, that physical infrastructure at borders doesn't stop migrants. Um, it's a way of communicating to, uh, in the case of Europe, European public opinion that something is being done. It's a relatively visible thing that can be pointed to. And Trump's uh, US-Mexico wall is another example of this. This is something is being done, even though that thing will almost certainly have no impact at all. It provides some level of reassurance. And it also provides some sort of deterrent um, to prospective migrants. And this is one of the reasons why, why we see that increasingly, um, there's a trend that's been going on for more than a decade now, undocumented migrants are increasingly young men, the sort of people who can jump nine meters off, a, off the top of a fence without fearing it too much. So as rather than affecting the numbers of migrants, this sort of project has an impact on the, the nature, the profile of migrants who are able to get across these sorts of structures. Um, but it is an interesting observation that these physical infrastructures have developed so significantly. That's a sort of extended introduction to the central theoretical point that, uh, that I want to make. Um, this talk is going to be divided approximately into thirds. Um, that first bit was the first third. I'm going to talk about migrant subjectivities in the next third, and then I'll get on to Morocco, specifically in the, in the last third. Um, this is the, the theoretical core of what I want to say. A lot of people um, in the critical side of, particularly within, within geography, but the social sciences more generally, have become very interested in subjectivity, particularly associated with migrants over the last five to ten years. And there's a range of interpretations of that. But it often goes back to, uh, to this quote from the History of Sexuality um, that I'll, I'll read out. Um, Foucault says, what are the processes of subjectivation and objectivation that allow the subject to become an object of knowledge, and he's referring to connaissance there, as a subject? Um, that's, in, in typical Foucauldian fashion, it's one of those things that you have to think about a bit to work out exactly what he means by that. But essentially, I think this quote is referring to the ways in which by transforming something into an object of knowledge, um, we are already making decisions about it. And, and even migrant is a, an interesting example of that, that many people who we define as migrants would much rather be seen as workers or as parents or as um, you know, adventurers in some cases, not really migrants. Migrant isn't necessarily the sort of subject choice that they would make for themselves. Um, people like me who do research on this say, okay, you're a migrant because you migrate, and that is the, the principal aspect of your individuality that I choose to define you on. So that's already a process of subjectivation, that, uh, that by labeling people migrant, you are overlooking a whole range of other things which they might think are more important about their identity. And, and that's an important thing to bear in mind, I think, that, uh, that individuals might not see themselves primarily as migrants. Um, a range of, of protests in the US from, from 2006 onwards of undocumented migrants <coughs> excuse me, um, were, were largely focused on the fact that they wanted to be seen as workers, not as migrants. So they... Um, the nature of the choices that we make in studying migrants already identify this figure of the migrant. 
But beyond that, there's a range of ways that, um, that I think we are encouraged to see migrants, both through scholarship on migration and significantly through uh, migration policy, which targets migrants. And I want to talk about three, three different ways, which I think are relatively common. Um, firstly, is the idea of objection, that, that migrants are essentially nothing. They are victims of the, the most easily overlooked sort. Um, this is a photo from the, um, the, the jungle in Calais, um, taken a couple of years ago. And you can see that this is something that migrants themselves um, object to. The, this quote here, we are not animals to live in the forests, we need to home, um, is a, a deliberate rejection of this understanding that they feel that they are being treated as animals. And therefore, that's how people see them, that's you know, to an extent perhaps what they are. But they're refusing that sort of understanding. For those of you who, who are familiar with the literature on migration, the, the philosopher, Italian philosopher Giorgio Agamben's work has been very popular in this sort of area over the last decade or so. Um, he was interested in what he referred to as homo sacer, um, uh, particularly uh, the development of, of Greek interpretations of bare life in the way that individuals were reduced to less than nothing. Individuals who could be killed but not sacrificed was his understanding of, of bare life. And, and for a while, this was very, um, very significant in the understanding of undocumented migration, that this was essentially an example of bare life because individuals died without really being counted. They disappeared without people really missing them. It was ungrieved death, in Agamben's words. But one of the problems with uh, Agamben's line is that it doesn't really lead us anywhere. It, it identifies this objection and, and clearly we, we react to that in, in, some, in the same way that, that the migrants in this case react to it. But it's a bit of a dead end in terms of responding to it. It's simply reaffirming some sort of victim status. There's a range of developments that have come out of that and some of these are, are quite uncomfortable for, for humanitarian engagement with this. Um, Didier Fassin's work has, um, has become and particularly influential for its critique of humanitarianism. Again, I'll read this out. Um, that um, This is a, a, a key quote of Fassin's around humanitarianism. He says, the ontological principle of inequality finds its concrete manifestation in the act of assistance through which individuals identified as victims are established. They are those for whom the gift cannot imply a counter-gift, since it is assumed that they can only receive. They are the indebted of the world. So Fassin is very very critical of the humanitarian principle. And this fits very well with this idea of the humanitarian border that I was talking about earlier. That Fassin's drawing on a long anthropological tradition of research in the gift. And essentially that, that tradition argues that, that a gift always expects a counter gift. A gift is never for free. It, it leads to some sort of obligation or some sort of counter gift of some way, however that is formulated. But in the humanitarian context, the gift is given without any expectation that, that there will be any sort of return on that gift. So it's dehumanizing in Fassin's terms and reinforces this idea of, uh, of victimhood amongst the individuals who, who receive it, that they are the indebted of the world. And we can see this in um, the ways in which this humanitarian border operates. Um, that there is a, this is coming from some of the, uh, the work we conducted in Northeast Africa over the last couple of years. Um, 
the language of the, the legislation, which is often a, a product of, of significant EU pressure on, on places like Sudan, um, to introduce legislation to, to, to criminalize certain forms of migration, reinforces this idea of victim. I won't um, read this out, but this is from the, the Khartoum Declaration of the, the end of November 2014 where a language of victim in relation to migrants is, is very prominent. And this return to the idea of migrants as victims is a significant one. Um, the, the Sudanese anti-trafficking law that, uh, that that came out of is, a, is another example of this sort of reinforcing the idea that migrants are victims who need to be helped in some way. And that is one of the ways in which for example, anti-trafficking legislation sets out to, to focus on migrants in this, this abject way. The second way in which um, migrants are, are frequently seen, and I think this comes out most strongly from the, the European migration crisis, even the, the, the narrative of crisis um, suggests that there is something um, abnormal and bad about the situation. There's something exceptional about the way that... Uh, uh, that migrants were behaving at that time. This photo is, uh, is from the New York Times and, and is an aerial photo of the, uh, the Greek-Macedonian border uh, the day after it was closed in 2015, emphasizing this sort of undifferentiated mass of humanity that, um, that migrants are often portrayed as in this, in this sort of context, even in, um, in esteemed um, publications like the, like the New York Times. Um, so this, this understanding of migrants has something which it has to be managed, with a, has to be kept away, um, not made up of individuals in any sense, but, uh, but something much more problematic in that, in that sense. Um, comes out of, I think, some of the, the interviews that we conducted during that, uh, during that project. Um, there's, sorry, there's the, um, the, the quote is missing a bit at the beginning there. I'm not sure why, maybe it's suddenly become uh, um, black writing. Anyway, this is a, uh, a quote from a 50-year-old uh, Ethiopian man in, in Egypt who's talking about the situation of the Dadaab refugee camp in Kenya. And uh, he'd lived there for some time, and this is a, a camp that's been maintained by the United Nations High Commission for Refugees um, for the last almost 20 years. Um, and increasingly, people moving northwards that we were encountering in, uh, in Ethiopia, in Sudan, and in, in Egypt, were people who'd experienced this sort of situation of refugee camps and were rejecting it. So there was a movement away from the existing, what UNHCR refer to as care and maintenance approaches in the way that they, they deal with refugee camps. That this isn't an attempt to find a, a permanent response, a durable solution as, as UNHCR refer to it. This is simply sort of holding the line against this, this unruly subject. But increasingly, people move away from this situation, that, that this is the, um, what is creating significant concern, that the existing responses, such as very large refugee camps like Dadaab, um, are no longer sufficient to, um, to respond to the individual's requirements there. So that's the, the second, this notion of unruly subjects. And I think the third... Um, way of looking at, um, at migrants that, that comes out more significantly from the uh, uh, more recent literature is to recognize the autonomy of, of migrants. And this is a distinct 
um, approach from this idea of unruliness, where unruliness is to see people as a relatively undifferentiated mass. Um, autonomous, or the autonomy of migration, as it's often referred to, identifies people as individuals who have particular interests, who will pursue those interests, um, in some cases regardless of the sort of legislation that is set up for them. I love this photo. Again, this is from the, those 2006 protests in the US. Um, and um, there's, there's nothing more likely to, to endear you to an American, I think, than the claim that you pay taxes and you love this country. Um, so those are the two claims that, uh, that these individuals are, are making there. Um, as a way of emphasizing the choices that they've made, they're not migrants in this case. They don't want to be seen as migrants. They're taxpayers and they are patriots. And that's a, a different slant on how they want to be seen. So they're claiming this position of, of subjectivity and claiming the right to, to dictate how they are seen. And that's an important one, I think. This is another, another photo from, uh, from Calais. A, um, this is Banksy, actually, the, uh, um, the, the British graffiti artist who um, this um, security wall um, around the, the Eurostar in, in Calais that um, the, the UK government claimed was, uh, was their response to the, uh, the crisis. And uh, they said that they had committed £12 million to supporting the uh, migrants in Calais. And then it turned out that the £12 million went exclusively to the construction of this wall, which wasn't a, a particularly uh, progressive response to the, uh, to the crisis. But um, nonetheless, um, Banksy um, highlights this um, uh, image of Steve Jobs to, um, to illustrate the fact that Steve Jobs was a, uh, uh, a child of Syrian refugees in the, in the US and ended up uh, founding the most profitable company in the world. Um, so there was something to be said for shifting the way that, that we look at migrants in this, uh, in this context. Um, and that is, again, coming out of this, um, uh, this research in Northeast Africa, um, a, an understanding that, that even if individuals make choices which appear to be irrational, there may be something that we need to understand behind that. I'll read this quote out again. This is from a 25-year-old Eritrean man who we interviewed in Ethiopia. Um, all refugees in the camp know the problems on the road to Libya, but because of the small chances for resettlement, everybody will try to go the illegal way. At this time of year, the weather is good, so maybe I will go after one month. I fear it a lot, but because I have no other option, I have to go. There are lots of people I know that have gone. Some of my friends have made it to Europe, and others have died. One of the things we were interested in this research was how people evaluated the risks of going to, uh, to Europe. And the, the average response that we got, we asked them directly, you know, what are the chances of dying on this route? And people said between 30 and 40% on average. It's a difficult thing to work out statistically, but to the extent that it's possible to work out statistically, it's more like 2%. The, the, the numbers that you're working with there are, are very uncertain. But it, it indicates, I think, the, the point that even where people vastly overestimate the, uh, the dangers that they're facing, they are still interested in, in traveling. So um, policy interventions like information campaigns, the European governments are very interested in information campaigns to tell people that this is dangerous because they think that that will then stop them coming. Actually, the reality suggests that they far outweigh the dangers and nonetheless they, are, they far overestimate the dangers uh, and nonetheless they're still interested in, in traveling. Um, so I think this autonomy um, which is, uh, is 
significant both in policy terms because it suggests that, that much policy is, um, is counterproductive or irrelevant um, in the face of, of certain objectives, migration objectives. But, um, but it's also a, a theoretically significant set of ideas um, more, more broadly. Um, is a, a significant point to, to turn to, to the situation in Morocco and in the last five or ten minutes um, say something about the, the, the radically new asylum and immigration policy that was announced at the end of 2013 and has resulted in, in one regularization, almost 20,000 people in 2015, and another regularization ongoing. Um, there's, there's a lot of criticism of, of these, these policies um, by, by people I, I work with quite closely on this, this issue, and, and perhaps many people here would share those critiques. Um, and I think it is undeniable that in certain cases there is legislation passed which is, is not really applied in all cases. There are, there are certainly problems. I don't want to... Um, to suggest that I'm looking at the Moroccan immigration policy with, with purely rose-tinted spectacles. But I think if we look at the relative and absolute change that has occurred in Morocco over that time, since 2013, um, this is something to be welcomed. And I think if we look at what has been happening over that time elsewhere in the European Union, Morocco really does start to, to stand out in the region as an astonishingly progressive place. And when I started working here in 2003, that would have been a difficult thing to say, I think, in terms of migration. Um, the, the extent of um, border control um, carried out by Frontex, but, uh, but also by the Spanish Guardia Civil, the, uh, the number of um, essentially massacres that are attributed to, to European border control agencies have grown dramatically since 2003, 2013, sorry. And over that time, the situation in Morocco has improved quite radically. It's a long way from perfect. Um, but I think one of the reasons why Morocco is criticized perhaps more than neighbors in North Africa is a methodological one, that it's it's actually relatively easy to come and do research on migration in Morocco, whereas to do research in Algeria, Libya, Egypt, even Tunisia is, is much more challenging. And, uh, and a lot of these critiques come from the fact that there is a real density of research going on in Morocco, which is not really replicated elsewhere in, in North Africa, but where the, the, the controls on research of that nature are, are much, much greater. Um, the, the report here, Human Rights Watch report from February 2014, abused and expelled, um, documented a tremendously um, dramatic deterioration in the, the physical treatment of migrants over the previous few years. And the, the photo on the cover, I don't know how well you can see it, but it's, it's somebody, I think the photo is taken from Gurugu. Um, it's a... Um, uh, it really emphasizes this idea of abject subjects, of, of individuals who, who can die without being mourned, who are, who are irrelevant, essentially. Um, and, and clearly the Human Rights Watch report is arguing against that. Uh, the previous year, in March 2013, Médecins Sans Frontières um, withdrew from Morocco and published a final, very, very damning report, an account of um, just over 9,000 
um, medical interventions that they had carried out with, with migrants, particularly in this region of, uh, of Morocco. Um, and it's in that context that um, the, the king in November 2013 um, took up the, um, the report of the, uh, the Conseil National des Droits de l'Homme um, in its entirety, um, written by, by Driss Eliazemi, and I think it's significant that the Drisseliazemi had been deported himself on, I think, at least two occasions from France um, in the 60s and 70s, um, and had really experienced, had, had personal experience of, uh, of being an undocumented migrant and of the treatment that undocumented migrants um, suffer. So I think there's a real personal biographical explanation to that, that, um, uh, that, that Driss's involvement there was... Um, was significant and was then accepted in its entirety. The change that has occurred over that period, certainly measured in terms of legislation and not living in Morocco, that's what I see most of. Um, I try and, and keep up with Moroccan newspapers to the extent I can, but, uh, but only coming here a few times a year for a few days each, it's, it's difficult to get a sense of exactly what's going on in between there. But certainly the legislation um, has improved dramatically and really deserves, I think, this, um, this claim that it is a radically new policy um, and fits particularly well with this idea of the autonomy of migration. I, I want to look um, in my penultimate slide at, at four... Um, oh. Yeah, this is... The, so the entire slide is... If I go... Yeah, I wonder if... Yeah, it's interesting that the only word that it's picked up is autonomy at the end, because that's essentially the uh, the question that I have. I'll, I'll run through this um, without the... I've got it in front of me, but it's just not appearing there. Um, I think there are four four reasons. Um, two of them are relatively standard, relatively widely accepted, and two are a bit more speculative, and this is really where I'm interested in, um, in what you think of this. Um, the first two that I think are, are widely accepted are... Um, and this is in terms of explanations for this change in orientation within national Moroccan policy towards migration. Um, the first is a geopolitical one, and this is essentially what, what Miriam and I argue in the, the 2015 article, that there are a range of ways in which... There's a, a great quote that we use in that article from Abdelmalek Sayyad, um, who, who argued that immigration demonstrates, immigration policy demonstrates the way in which a nation thinks of itself. And I think this 2013 shift, and I think it's a substantial shift, um, illustrates a particular change in the way that Morocco thinks of itself. That's basically the argument that Miriam and I make in that paper. Um, from this idea from that uh, Hassan II argued that Morocco is a tree with its, uh, its roots in Africa and its leaves in Europe, um, that's one particular geopolitical understanding of where Morocco is. And I think the, the 2013 shift in migration policy illustrates a particular change in the way that Morocco thinks of itself as maybe having a few branches in sub-Saharan Africa as well as just roots. I think the Hassan II, who, who applied to join the European Union in 1986, and it's clear where, where his, um, his objectives were, um, was really using that that image as a as a justification for for overlooking a lot of connections with sub-Saharan Africa, and I think the 
the, the return to the African Union and the awareness of the growing economic significance of, uh, of West Africa um, are, are obvious reasons why there would be more attention paid to the treatment of West African migrants in Morocco. So the first, I think, is the geopolitical one. I don't think that's, that's too contentious. Um, the second is a demographic explanation that um, given declining fertility in Morocco, um, Moroccan fertility is, is around about European levels now, the population will start declining fairly soon. Um, there's an awareness that immigration is economically needed in order to maintain the population. Um, and that's an argument that's been used in the European Union for some time, and demographers demonstrate that actually the European Union would need something like 450 million migrants over the next 20 years in order to make up for the demographic deficit. So it's, it's not, clearly the European Union isn't going to have 450, we've seen what 1 million migrants does to the European Union, so 450 migrants, million migrants is, is unlikely. Um, so the demographic explanation is, is problematic from that, from that basis. But I think there's, you know, there's a clear demographic issue which, um, which policymakers in Morocco are obviously aware of. The, the two others which I think are, are particularly interesting and a little more speculative are firstly a normative shift in the way that, that migrants are seen, that there is a, an understanding that migrants don't fit this, this pattern of abject subjects. There's a recognition of the autonomy of migrants um, and there is a, a human rights response at least legislatively, and in, the, in practice I know there are still some problems with that, but I think the, the legislation is there to support a much more human rights focus in responding to migration. And I think that is, particularly because it comes out of Drusilia Zemi's experience, it comes out of the, the CCME, which he also heads up, the, the Council of Moroccans, uh, I'm not sure if it's à l'étranger or à l'extérieur, um, but um, there are those who know, I'm sure. Um, so there is a pressure from a Moroccan emigrant community which is particularly interesting. I think European states who've been through this transition, there's a lot of research on Ireland that I'm, I'm well aware of that, that starts with the assumption that because over the last 150 years ago or so the Irish emigrated in situations of considerable difficulty, when people started arriving in Ireland in similar difficulty, you would have expected the Irish to welcome them a bit better than they did. Um, and that wasn't the case. So this, this connection between significant experience of emigration and positive treatment of immigration isn't necessarily shown to hold in that case. In Morocco, there is perhaps some evidence that, that it's a bit firmer, that there is, a, is, there is a link between those individuals who have experienced um, indignity, discrimination in various contexts of, of Europe are more likely to look favorably on those people who who seem to be experiencing the same sort of things uh, coming into Morocco. So there is a connection there um, that suggests a normative shift in the way migration is seen. And finally, um, turning to this question of, of migrant autonomy, um, how does policy recognize autonomy? I think most of the literature on uh, the autonomy of migration, which is, is becoming quite a popular way from a, a critical perspective of looking at migration, really defines autonomous migration as migration which avoids or um, completely negates migration policy. 
And if we're looking or starting to ask the question of how can migration policy recognize that autonomy, I think regularization really is one of the only answers to provide people with a level of security that they can then do what they want. Um, and it's, it's interesting to see how the European Union has responded to that, to those regularizations, which I think is not entirely enthusiastically. Um, but um, but that's, that's really the, the sort of big question mark that I have around writing this paper. Where does this well-developed theoretical set of ideas around migration autonomy, migrant autonomy, fit in with, with a policy application for that? And um, to finish with some... Oh, there, there. That's the, there, there's my conclusions. Um, that policy responses influence and are influenced by the political subjectivity of migration. There's a two-way relationship here that I hope I've sketched out in relation to um, abject subjects, unruly subjects, and autonomous subjects, these three tropes that I've, I've, I've drawn out. Um, and the most effective responses are those which recognize the autonomy of, of migrants. So the long-term impact of regularizations in Morocco, I think, is, is still uncertain. And it will be interesting to continue um, looking at this. And certainly, from a European Union perspective, I know that this is being watched very closely. So this is almost a sort of watch this space ending. But, um, but perhaps that's something that, um, that you can help me fill in at the end. So thank you very much indeed. I'll stop there. Thank you so much. Um, so my first question is about um, regularization as it's seen um, from the perspective of European policymakers. Um, you said that they look upon it skeptically, but I know that um, some of the critical scholars, I don't know what their kind of empirical backing for this is, but they worry about externalization um, and they think that regularization is kind of a policy response that's being encouraged by um, the European Union to kind of move the move the networked border um, south. Um, so I'm wondering if you've had conversations with any European policymakers and um, what they're saying about regularization. What's their view of it in Morocco? Kind of through that. Sure. Thank you. Um, I think that, and this is one of those areas that I'm I'm still very uncertain about, um, and I I have had conversations with um, with European policymakers, both in the Commission and in, in national governments. This is one of the things that I, I try to, to devote some time researching. And um, officially, they are welcoming of the of regularizations and the, the changed approach in, in Morocco. And as I think they have to be for, for decades, they emphasize, in fact, the... the the system of asylum which Morocco currently has was introduced under very significant European pressure around 2002-2003 and the idea that individuals could claim asylum in Morocco and would therefore not want to go to, um, to, to Europe was part of this, this externalization logic that, that I think you're talking about. And there's certainly s an element of that there. I think the regularization is, is different because providing... <coughs> Providing people with a, a legal right of residency in Morocco, even temporary, um, many of whom um, may be interested in, in going on to the European Union, rather than continually repressing those individuals in the public space. 
um, makes it much easier for people to go to the European Union if they wanted to. And I think it was, from that perspective, a, a really interesting strategic move by the Moroccan government to say, okay, everybody's legal. And clearly not everybody's legal. And uh, that's characterizing it a little bit, caricaturing it a bit. But um, when you you have a... Um, and there's um, people like Abdelkrim Belgandouz who who critique this idea of the Morocco, Morocco as the, the gendarme de l'Europe is the phrase that he often uses. Um, that when the when the policeman suddenly says, okay, nobody's doing anything illegal anymore, then they're, they're not really acting as a policeman in that case. You know, they're, they're doing something different. And I think there is a degree of discomfort within in Europe if, and it's only 20,000 at the moment, and, and the European policymakers have got other things to worry about, but if there was significant evidence that people were becoming regularized and then using that greater stability to move on to Europe, I think there would be some concern about that. The brilliance of the move is that it's, it can't be vocalized publicly. You know, the European Union can't criticize Morocco for treating migrants well, having spent decades criticizing Morocco for treating migrants badly. So there's, there's a really interesting... I've, I've not yet had a European policymaker prepared to go on record saying we're not happy about regularizations because it makes it easier for undocumented migrants to get to Europe. But I think there's something of that there. Yeah. Well, I think that's probably somewhat true. Um, I was working with IOM earlier this summer on kind of they were judging the efficacy of regularization and a lot of um, people told me that people who had been regularized were now um, in Europe and they thought that the narrative the Moroccan government was trying to forward is that Morocco is now a destination country. Um, that's the, what they were suspicious of. Um, so, But yesterday um, I saw a letter posted on this Facebook page called Voix de Micron, which is run um, by um, someone here out of Tangier. And it was an article from a French migrant association that basically said, we are not um, subjects of journalists. We are not subjects of your research. We are migrants. We are autonomous, and we have voices. Um, and I'm wondering kind of where you see information extractors um, in this kind of ecosystem, where you see journalists, where you see researchers, and do they rely on kind of objectifying migrants into these abject um, victims? or? in kind of can they portray them as autonomous? Um, is that kind of paradoxical on face as I think that letter, which I'm just paraphrasing um, probably poorly, would suggest? Does that make sense as a question? Yeah, I think so. It's, uh, um, it's, it's a question that requires some thinking about. It's, I think the standard approach of, um, of media around this issue is one of victimization. And that can take either the, oh, look at these poor migrants, they're suffering, we need to help them, um, or um, this is terrible, all these people are coming and we can't do anything about it. I mean, there's, I think there's two, which is the sort of what I've called abject subjects and, and unruly subjects here. Um, recognizing the individuality of motivations for migration would be one of the ways in which uh, a journalistic response could could try to bring out this autonomy, I think. And you're right that there is this this desire for autonomy, I think. The we're not animals to live in the forest is the you know, that was their response to journalists. Journalists coming and taking photos of them in the in the Calais jungle there. 
that that was it was a rejection of that. You know, we are we're individuals, each with our own stories, and uh, and the individuals that that I interview on a um, on a fairly regular basis are report stories of working out what they can get out of journalists. I mean, they're aware of the of the power imbalance, and uh, and if they can get something out of journalists, then great. They might be able to get some information. They might be able to get some money. They and and th that's the same way that they would look at me, at least initially. And sometimes when you get to know people, you realise that you've got beyond that. But and and in a lot of cases, you don't get beyond that at all. It's a it's a purely instrumentalising um, relationship in in both directions. I want some information from them, and they want to know what they can get out of me. And well, uh, yeah, I was wondering about that. Um, just I think that kind of pushes back against the idea that migrants are these abject subjects. And even when you speak to aid workers, I think, or when you speak to migrants about aid workers, I think migrants are very aware that without their cooperation, these aid workers can't carry out um, their jobs. So I think it's really difficult to kind of frame people as homo sacer in those terms and in that category. Um, I don't know how that fits into um, a question, though. Um, I wanted to ask also about um, kind of geographic variance. In, um, so if we kind of take the idea that how Morocco thinks about migration reflects how it thinks about itself, I'm kind of wondering how that differs um, between Tangier and Rabat and Nador. And kind of specifically because we're here in Tangier, um, I'm wondering how migration in Tangier kind of affects how Tangier thinks of itself. Um, we all know that Tangier kind of has this mythology of itself as an international city. Um, you know, it has a lot of kind of labor migrants and people who have moved southward to retire um, because it's cheaper um, and kind of I'm wondering how all these currents are interacting um, to think about kind of how Tangier thinks of itself. I don't think I can answer that. Maybe that's, uh, yeah. But is, no, do you I have any ideas about kind of geographic variance? Like I think um, here in Tangier I think people mostly think of migrants um, as people who have come to cross the border, either via sea or via land. Um, and I don't think that's the case as much in Rabat and Casablanca. And I'm kind of wondering if you have any ideas about what that reflects about the cities and kind of how people are thinking about them and how that's changing. Maybe there is a, a sense that in Tangier, people see migrants as transitory, that they're inevitably passing through. and this this historical understanding of Tangier as a crossroads reinforces that, whereas places like Rabat or Fez or Kaza, people would accept more easily that people have come to live there because they want to spend time there, um, or because they have family there, or because they've got a job there. Or, um, But that's, yeah, I don't know enough about the recent situation in Tangier. To, when generally, over the last seven or eight years, when I've come back to Morocco, it's not been to Tangier. It's been to Rabat and Kaza. And Fez and the research that I've conducted has been there. So it's been it's been a decade since I did any lengthy, substantial interviews with 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 non Moroccans in Tangier. 
Yeah, well, sorry if that was an unanswerable question um, or unfair. Um, my last question, and I'd love to kind of have the audience ask questions instead of me, was about AVRR, um, which is, in case people don't know, Assisted Voluntary Return and Reintegration. It's basically a voluntary deportation program in which migrants who arrive at a destination and upon getting there find um, it unlivable, um, IOM will pay for them to return to their country of origin um, and will give them a small kind of lump sum in order to reintegrate. And I'm kind of wondering about what of your three subjectivities, how you see this fitting into it. If it, this is kind of a something that points towards autonomy or if this is something that points towards objection. And I would be interested in what you think about AVRR in general too. That's a really interesting question. I um, I gave a paper two years ago in London called uh, Assisted Voluntary Return, Neither Assisted Nor Voluntary Nor Return, which um, sums up you know, the, research that I done, the research that I've done in that context is more in Sri Lanka rather than in, in this region. Um, but it was looking at the, the ways in which, which it operates um, as a form of, of removal, essentially. So I think... Um, there are examples where people use it strategically, where migrants use it strategically, that I think would, would lead to a, a more autonomous understanding. Um, but I think the objective of it is, is much more building on this notion of migrants as victims. Yeah. And the way that it's now operating here, I think, fits in that sort of notion that people are stranded. IOM had a, a stranded migrants program for a while um, that I think... Um, reinforces that sort of idea. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, it'd be great if um, any audience members had questions. Oh, here, John. Yes, please, and please introduce yourselves if you have a question. I'm Jerry Butler. I deal with migrants at the Anglican Church, and I've also got some experience of dealing with some migrants that work. And the regularization program, as I see it, um, it's Unfortunately, Morocco has not been able to sell itself as a destination. And the regularization program, as I've seen it, I've seen how it worked with a certain amount of migrants I've met, is that they simply, being regularized, they're legally able to get employment, and they manage to get the money together faster, and faster to get on the boat. That's, that's about what I've seen it. And it's up to Morocco to try and sell itself. The idea that uh, I've, been, I've been here for, well, doing business here for about 27 years, idea that Morocco's got a demogra demographic problem, I find rather surprising. I'm quite pleased to hear it. But we haven't actually, I don't, in, within the migrants, you cannot drive out this uh, great dream of getting to Europe. And there's, there's also pressure from behind. I see it when you talk to migrants, there's a great deal of pressure from the family or the extended family behind are expecting some kind of a result out of this. And this is one of the reasons why they will take this risk, and they'll continue to take it. But it's up to Morocco to sell itself, perhaps, as well as, as well as, uh, like regularization, you know, as a and they, and as a place where you can get. Because Tangier, there is work if you regularize, but it still doesn't drive that dream of Europe out of their heads. That's what I see. That's really interesting. Thank you very much. I'll, uh, that reinforces, I think, some of this this concern that I was interpreting on the part of, of European policymakers. 
Um, the fertility in Morocco is currently 2.1, which is below replacement levels. But um, because there's a significant, people call it a youth bulge in demographic terms, there's a, uh, um, a historical cohort of, of people who is quite significant, and they are moving up into the labor market now in Morocco. But uh, once they have, have moved through the labor market, then subsequent generate subsequent cohorts of individuals will, are significantly fewer. So there is this awareness that in the next 10 to 20 years, the numbers of people coming into the labor market, although it's significant now, because it's even too many now, will in the relatively near future be, be a lot less. Um, but, uh, Hello, uh, Marwan. I, uh, I'm a youth worker, let's say. <laughs> uh, so uh, about migration, because we, uh, as young people, we are really like, you know, it's a topic that we share a lot. And um, I just wanted to say that, of course, Morocco is like doing a great progress when it comes to uh, migrant regulation and all this. But my, my comment is more about the, we are trying to fight a, like uh, a natural human being thing. Like human being, we're like migrating and moving from a place to another since forever. And uh, through this, the more like a regulation it is, like the more complicated it gets, and hence there are like so many problems that we see nowadays related to also uh, terrorism or all this uh, um, consequences that we see uh, of like in Europe, especially for the the exclu social exclusion, nationalism, and etc. And that is like I don't know. It's like we like we made it like we are in a dilemma where. We are we create these borders and we are trying to study them and try to like fit what we thought is correct in terms of like what is like human behavior. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. That's really interesting. I think the the issue is and the this idea of the autonomy of migration comes out of the fact that that as you've said, human behavior often doesn't fit within borders, and and how do we then start to um, to to try to understand that where where clearly the borders are are irrelevant. I mean they're not irrelevant because they have they have actual impacts on people's lives. But in terms of the way that people think about their objectives and their ambitions and their future, they transcend borders very frequently, and that's a, a dilemma that that we haven't yet resolved in that context. Tim Resch, friend of Morocco, uh, wanted to ask kind of about the, the policy hydraulics uh, associated with undocumented migrants, documented migrants, uh, immigrants, and how both, I guess, in, in, the, in Europe and here in Morocco, uh, decisions associated with undocumented um, uh, migrants influences um, other ways where, populate, or where people move to live in another country. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. I love that term, uh, policy hydraulics. That's a, uh, it really gives a, a, a sense of how directly they're connected, and I think they are connected directly. Um, there is a, um, there's a clear connection, I think, between policies which have a, a humanitarian focus, um, I mean, in Morocco and, and in, in Europe, um, individuals are provided asylum um, on the basis that, that they have a protection need. 
and regularization where they've operated here and, and elsewhere are based on, on length of residence. Um, but they have economic implications. So there's a, once someone has been given asylum, they've been granted protection, they then need a job um, if they continue living there. And, and if they are taking a job that, that could be taken by, a, uh, by another, another migrant, then that, that has that sort of knock-on effect where one, one type of, of migration is, is fulfilling the need that could be fulfilled by another type of migration. Um, and people call that the migration asylum nexus or the, the notion of mixed migration that people are moving for different reasons. Um, going back to the, to the 1960s um, in Western Europe, it's reckoned that there were plenty of people who needed protection, coming from Morocco, for example, um, who could get a, a work contract relatively easily, so move to, uh, to Europe and, uh, and got a job. And they weren't registered as an asylum seeker or as a refugee, but that was the reason why they were going. Now that shift has moved the other way, that it's very, very difficult to, uh, to go and get a job in, in Western Europe, so, so people go as asylum seekers because that's the only way you can go, whether they need protection or... You no, know, there are plenty of people who don't really need protection, but they want to go and get a job in Europe, so they apply through that route. So there's a direct connection there um, that, um, that is, you know, in, in policy terms, is, is quite a sensitive one. I think there's particularly given that economic migrant is one way of, of delegitimizing a claim to protection. If you say that someone is just wanting a job, you're saying that they're not a real refugee. Um, so there's certainly a, a connection, and in some cases that's a direct, practical, demographic connection or an economic connection, but there's also this discursive connection which makes it quite difficult to talk about in some contexts, I think, about that. But um, thank you. Hello, my name is Nora. I am a coordinator of a legal clinic offering a legal assistance to migrants in Tangier. And I've also done research on uh, refugee studies and migration studies. I've done research in Lebanon and uh, with the Syrian refugees and the issue of victimhood too. Uh, my question is about the autonomy of migrants and why do states' policies do not recognize the autonomy of migrants? Don't you think that states' policies do not recognize the autonomy of migrants because the state itself, as a project, um, bases its legitimacy on the exclusion of, uh, uh, of uh, two, bodies of two bodies, bodies of citizens and the bodies of non-citizens, migrants and citizens. So if we say that migrants are ordinary people, they're autonomous, then we cannot say that they're a threat. We cannot say that they're a burden. We cannot uh, have all these policies of securitization and uh, security discourse of the state. So I think this, uh, this, um, this idea of uh, migrants as victims supports it is itself inherited in the discourse of the state, that, um, it, which is exclusionary by itself. So do you agree? Yeah, yeah, no, that was brilliantly expressed. I totally agree. I think that's a uh, that's a sort of entire course in uh, in political science of the state that you've expressed very clearly in a couple of sentences there. Um, exactly, I think it's it's very interesting that that the European Union and one of the one of the reasons why I'm a big fan of the European Union is because I think it's the it's the most significant experiment in no borders that the world has ever seen, and um, one reason why. Britain in general isn't a big fan of that because Britain likes borders. Um, but, um, 
But this, it's interesting that at the time of this, this no-border regime, at least within Europe, individuals stop being called migrants. You know, a, a French citizen who comes to the UK for work is not a migrant. They are simply a European exercising their right to free movement. So the, the label migrant disappears in that context. So the state can't define itself against migrants if they can come and go as they want. So they, they just stop being migrants. And that, the problem is resolved in that context. But, uh. Uh, hi, I am Walid. I'm a student at uh, HEM Business School. Uh, we all uh, agree on the fact that uh, migration today is a severe problem in our world. But uh, what I think is more important is to find a realistic solution. So in my opinion, that's the most complicated thing. Uh, what would be your solution? Do you think that if we uh, destroy the borders, we, go, we will, uh, we will uh, offer uh, a good solution to that people who is escaping from war and from poverty? I think uh, eliminating, solution, uh, eliminating f uh, f the frontiers is not a solution. It helps only to uh, create a different climate, a different social illusion uh, in our countries that everybody is able to come here, everybody is able to live with us. But the most important thing when someone comes uh, to a different country, to a foreign country, uh, is to give him a certain uh, feeling of uh, that he is at home. Is what we call, uh, what Spanish people call convivencia. It's like we are all able to live together in a, in a place and to talk and to uh, share a certain way of culture. So what would be your solution? Thanks. That's a really good way of putting it. Um, I've got a, um, a, a new colleague at Sussex who's just arrived. He's, uh, he's originally Syrian. And his research is looking at neighborliness and particularly drawing on Islamic understandings of neighborliness and you know, what makes a good neighbor and, and how was that reinforced in legal terms over the, over the years through, through centuries of Islamic jurisprudence. Um, a really interesting set of ideas that, that comes up with you know, a similar, similar sort of ideas. This, um, this idea that, that difference exists and you know, you're different from your neighbor and there are certain things that you need to keep separate from your neighbor. But at the same time, being a good neighbor requires you to do a certain, certain set of things, to recognize a certain set of rights. Um, so I think that fits in along the lines of what you're saying. Um, I'm not sure that borders as they've, and I wouldn't argue that borders shouldn't exist, and clearly within the European Union there are still borders, but most people can cross them relatively easily. Um, that doesn't mean that, that there's no differentiation there in, in significant ways, it just means that they're operating in a slightly different way within the European Union as they do at the edge of the European Union. Um, and, and I don't think that's been too dramatic. I mean, for me, that's been a positive thing. Clearly, that's a matter of opinion, and I don't speak for, for the majority even of my, my co-citizens, unfortunately, in saying that. But um, um, so there's, yeah, there's substantial opposition to that, to that view, and, and people are concerned by that, by that view. Um, but it's, um, yeah, it's, a, it's a, a difficult debate, as you suggest, but I don't think reducing controls at borders would be as dramatic as many people think it would be.
uh, who seem to be law students in Tanger. I think about <coughs> there is a lot of, th of things to say about this topic, seriously. Uh, I was in trip in Europe, I just come from Europe uh, three or four days ago. I visit Spain, France, Belgium, uh, <coughs> for reason, to see migrants, asylum seekers, and refugees. Because last year I met uh, the Treasurer General of France, Bruno Bizarre, is actually my friend. <coughs> uh, and France is affected by, uh, as Sweden, as Germany, as Spain, as many, many European countries of asylum seekers and refugees. I think it's a serious topic. And solution will be no, for me, my vision, I think there will be no solution if there is no pressure, political and diplomatic pressure from democratic nations to the uh, authoritarian or uh, dictatorship regimes. In Africa, we're <coughs> now billion and 200 million people. Uh, and we are expected to be to the double in 2015. 2 billion and 3 or 400 million people, according to CIA cynicism. <laughs> You're working with them. <laughs> You're not working with them. By the way, uh, I think because now we're talking about the North and South migration, uh, I think there will be no solution, seriously. Just in the current situations, there is no, no lots of countries uh, working through the, the, the democracy. Kenya, just uh, a month, I think, or two months ago, they did a presidential election, and now there are 37 people killed, in just today and yesterday and last week. Uh, <coughs> I think, I don't see pressure enough, seriously. I saw people in, in Germany, in Netherlands, in Spain, France, Moroccans, Moroccans, they're, they're <coughs> fleeing their homes not only their homes, their families and their friends and their neighbors, because they're seeking for good life, for uh, liberty, for peace, for security, for a uh, sure future. Because here in Africa, I'm actually African, I will not talk about Asia or America or some, something else, but in Africa, people seeking for uh, democracy, at least democracy, at least. I can't talk uh, about Morocco because maybe I will be arrested. But seriously, uh, uh, days ago, a jo Moroccan journalist, because he was uh, covering uh, protests in northern uh, Moroccan northern cities of Hussein, now he's jailed. In the same day that the judge judged him, <laughs> sadly there was king, uh, house people, some officials that given results of their investigations, etc. So, uh, there is a thing. I think there will be no solution if there is no pressure. Pressure for a diplomatic and political pressure in world organizations, uh, continental organizations, regions, organizations, I think. I believe in this point. This is number one. Number two, I think uh, refugees and migrants in future, even citizens, will not have enough jobs because now we are in a period uh, for transferring our jobs to robots. 
So this is, would I say, this is serious. Uh, this is serious topic because robots now going to replace our jobs, to replace us in our jobs, and uh, sensors, uh, research sensors say, in ten, in next ten years, eighty or seventy percent of our jobs will be done by uh, robots. So, if in the end, if uh, migrants fleeing their homes, seeking for security or jobs or anything else, but at least they will find or they must have job to continue and to integrate in the destination country. How do you think or how do you see the solution in the robots, the robotism and refugees and migrants and all of that? Thank you. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> the big questions and fascinating questions and expressed very articulately. Thank you very much indeed. Um, yeah, they deserve some kind of response, but, um, but clearly I can't give it a satisfactory response. The, this idea of root causes is an important one and, and has been an important one since the UNHCR has been talking about the root causes of migration since the early 1980s and has had international conferences to try to identify what the root causes are and in you know the the sort of issues of um demographic deficits of of um uh, of democratic deficits um that you talk about are clearly significant in in both cases that while there are um authoritarian regimes around there are going to be people who want to get away from those authoritarian regimes um and questions of the rule of law and um those sorts of basic governance issues are, are significant attractions for migrants, I think. Um, but there is evidence of, you know, varied evidence, but evidence of progress in certain parts of the world. Um, one of the things which is, is significant at the moment in terms of development, a lot of, of European Union development funding is going to the, the sorts of countries that you're talking about. I mean, it's not particularly significant funding. But um, there is an idea that development funding will help to address these issues and will stop people migrating. And most of the evidence suggests that that's not the case at all. That at, at least at relatively low levels of development, you know, countries like Chad or Niger or Democratic Republic of Congo, um, as they develop more, as people become wealthier, they will start to, to use that wealth to get out of the country. Um, so as um, as countries develop, migration increases up to a up to a certain level, at which point it starts to decrease again, and nobody really knows that level. Um, but it's something like Thailand, say, you know, the Thai emigration has has dropped off over the last decade or so. So there is, there's, I won't say optimism, but there is um, there's evidence that change in migration patterns is related to the other things that you talk about. And in terms of robots, mm -hmm. yeah, some, some jobs will certainly disappear. Service, services, I think the service industry is our defense against robots because nobody wants to be served in a cafe by a robot. There'll <laughs> always be a, a job for somebody to work in cafes or restaurants or hotels or something like that, but, which is a, a significant section of jobs that migrants perform. Migrants fulfill those kind of jobs because often citizens don't want to do that. So. Um, mm -hmm. So there is some, yeah. We'll make some this room. the last question, if that's okay. But 
you can stay around and ask some questions. Also, any of you who are researchers from uh, North America or Europe, uh, please afterwards introduce yourselves to some of the students here because I think it'd be very helpful for them to know what you're doing uh, uh, yourselves as researchers. Hi, uh, my name is Yasin. I'm an English teacher and uh, student researcher in Tijuana. So I'd like to thank you for your presentation. It was very informative, by the way. And uh, this issue of migration is not a current issue, but rather an issue of the past. So it was said more than 30 years ago mentioned that our age is indeed the age of uh, uh, refugees, okay, the displaced person and mass migration. So as uh, migration becomes recognized as in recognized as central or important in contemporary societies. So how does transit become central in understanding uh, contemporary, yes, or uh, in understanding the situation of individuals within this, yes, modern spaces, etc. Thank you. Thank you. And this notion of transit migration is one that, that has been used to label Morocco for um, for much of the time that you talk about, most of the last um, 10, 20 years or so, um, the idea that, that countries are countries of origin, countries of transit, or countries of immigration. Um, and it's difficult to identify a country which is only one of those. And, and I think Morocco is an example of a country which is all three. People leave Morocco, people arrive in Morocco to stay, and people move through. Um, and, and that's one reason why this idea of transit, it's the stuff that I've written on transit, has been largely to criticize it as a sort of political tool to, to interpret migration in linear terms. The, this, uh, the AVR system, the return system that Sam was talking about earlier, the, one of the most recent ways of talking about them, certainly from policymakers in the UK, um, is upstream return. So a, a project that Morocco is implementing on voluntary return is referred to as upstream return in the UK, which is a really interesting sort of fluvial metaphor suggesting that actually this river downstream is, is the UK because UK policymakers think that all rivers lead to the UK in this context. So upstream, anywhere else, is upstream return. And that's this image of transit, that the people are inevitably, almost inexorably, coming through to, um, to reach some destination elsewhere, Sweden or Germany or the UK. Or, and by that definition, Spain is often a, a country of transit, although it would never be called a country of transit by the Spanish government. Um, there are a, a range of ways in which the, this term is used. And I think what's more interesting is not necessarily what it means, but how it's used politically. And that's, that's one of the ways I've tried to analyze it. But thank you for your question. Thank all of you very much for coming. Thank you. Thank you. I want to thank Dr. Collier. I also want to thank Sam Metz. Sam Metz's research is coming to an end in December, and we've already promised him a chance. He's working on not the same issue, but the same general category of issues. Um, We've already offered him a chance to welcome Sam back probably sometime in December. We don't know the date yet, so we'll post it on our Facebook page when Sam will be coming to discuss his research findings as well. And again, thank you. 
Thank you for listening to Maghrib in Past and Present podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website, www.themaghribpodcast.com, as well as on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, like our Facebook page, Maghrib in Past and Present Podcasts, visit the webpages of the American Institute for Maghrib Studies or the Tangier American Legation Institute for Moroccan Studies. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed our podcast. Thank you.